Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 126 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll hear how the multinational oil companies have taken another step towards stealing Iraq's oil. And in the second segment, you'll get some great public opinion stats on the hottest issues guaranteed to demoralize your right-wing friends and acquaintances. Let's get right into it. Sources you'll hear in this first segment include the New York Times, the Washington Post, the British newspaper The Independent, democracynow.org, the Los Angeles Times, the book Overthrow by former New York Times reporter Stephen Kinzer, the New York Daily News, and the Interpress Service News Agency. Last week, the New York Times revealed details of new agreements currently being negotiated between multinational oil companies and the government of Iraq. The Times did give this front-page play, but the story hasn't gotten much traction elsewhere. The public's undoubtedly largely unaware of it. But it's critically important that you understand the significance of this development. To do that, you need to hear some background. For roughly the first half of the 20th century, seven Western corporations controlled the world's oil. Those seven are now merged into four. ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and British Petroleum. The oil firms achieved their corporate stranglehold by imposing a severe form of contract called a Production Sharing Agreement, or PSA. Under these one-sided deals, the multinationals essentially controlled everything, exploration, extraction, and sale. They paid a pitifully small royalty to the country, which still retained nominal ownership of the oil. That royalty was often as low as 12.5%. Since the 1960s, a wave of nationalism and anti-colonialism inspired third world nations to force the multinationals to agree to a totally different arrangement. Here, the country nationalizes its oil and sets up a national oil company to control the process of exploration, extraction, and sale. The multinationals are hired to perform specific services only. Instead of the split being as much as 88 to 12 in the company's favor, that type of percentage is flipped. The country now retains the vast bulk of the revenue. Most of the world's oil is now produced under this second nationalization model. Oil company control in the form of PSAs is the case with only 12% of the world's oil. Most OPEC nations follow the nationalization model. Iraq's oil system has been under state control for the last three decades ever since Saddam Hussein nationalized it. Here's the rub, quote, Ever since they lost their exclusive control of the oil to the governments, the companies have been trying to get it back, close quote. Trying to get it back. Okay, you get the picture? That's the setup. The oil companies are salivating to get back the oil that is rightfully theirs to exploit and profit from. One of their prime targets has been Iraq. Here's the head of Chevron in 1998. Iraq possesses huge reserves of oil and gas, reserves I'd love Chevron to have access to. How about then head of Halliburton Dick Cheney around the same time? By 2010, we'll need a further 50 million barrels a day. 
the Middle East, with two-thirds of the oil and the lowest cost, is still where the prize lies. In 2001, Vice President Cheney's Energy Task Force says it wants Middle Eastern countries, quote, to open up areas of their energy sectors to foreign investment, close quote. As the Iraq war gets closer and closer, the focus is more explicitly on Iraq. The U.S. State Department's Oil and Energy Working Group says that Iraq, quote, should be open to international oil companies as quickly as possible after the war, close quote. It helpfully adds that those multinational-friendly, unfair-to-the-country PSAs should be the form of contract. Then, well into the occupation of Iraq, you get the icing on the let's-not-even-hide-our-oil-lust cake. It's in the much-touted, bipartisan-endorsed Iraq Study Group report of December 2006. You remember that one? Recommendation number 63 nakedly sets forth the corporate agenda for Iraq's oil wealth. The U.S. should, quote, assist Iraqi leaders to reorganize the national oil industry as a commercial enterprise, close quote, and, quote, encourage investment in Iraq's oil sector by the international community and by international energy companies, close quote. The right wing did their best to leave nothing to chance with Iraq's black gold. Around 2005, the Bush administration hired the consultancy firm Bearing Point to, quote, advise the Iraqi oil ministry on drafting and passing a new national oil law, close quote. After the law was drafted, it was reviewed by international oil companies, the U.S. and British governments, and the International Monetary Fund. Only then was the Iraqi parliament allowed to see it. No wonder, as the New York Daily News put it, quote, it's a radical departure not only from Iraq's existing structure, but from how oil is managed in most of the world today, close quote. A non-corporate oil industry analyst said that the law would function to the, quote, great detriment of Iraq's economy, democracy, and sovereignty, close quote. Now let me give you some of the gory details. The law provides for those terrible production sharing agreements, PSAs, where the multinationals get a hunk of the profits and have substantial control over the process. The Iraqis would be locked into these one-sided agreements for 15 to 35 years. Iraq has 80 known oil fields. The Iraq National Oil Company would retain exclusive control of just 17 of them. The rest plus all fields as yet undiscovered, all fields yet undiscovered are thrown open to foreign control. The law goes further than even the worst doomsayers predicted, way beyond prior PSAs. Quote, Chevron, ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, and the other Western oil giants could end up on the board of directors of the Iraqi Federal Oil and Gas Council while Iraq's own national oil company would become just another competitor, close quote. It gets even worse. The foreign multinationals will be able, essentially, to run wild in Iraq. They're given the right to take 100% of their profits out of the country, refuse to take Iraqi companies as partners, refuse to hire any Iraqi workers, and refuse to share technology. And if there's a dispute, these foreign multinationals won't be subject to Iraqi law, 
won't come under the jurisdiction of that nation's courts. If it sounds to you like the law was written not by Iraqis, but by the Bushians, well, as you of course just heard, it essentially was. Passage of this law became a high priority for the Bush administration. You wondering how'd the Bushians do with their let's steal Iraq's oil scheme? Stay tuned. Your one-minute voting report. We're dropping a bit in the iTunes rankings. I really do thank the 1 in 10 listeners so far who posted a 5-star review for Blast the Right in the iTunes Music Store. Could we get that percentage up a bit? It's a one-time thing. The review stays up there permanently. Higher iTunes rankings gives Blast the Right more visibility and gets us more listeners. Then it won't so prominently be the corporate-owned media that iTunes users see as a top choice. And... When you write a five-star review for Blast the Right, you can have the satisfaction of knowing you're countering the right-wing one-star sabotage reviews. Over at PodcastAlley.com, we're hanging in there at number seven. Voting starts anew there every month. So, if you haven't yet voted for June, you know what to do. Thanks. So what happened to the U.S. written Iraq oil law? It ran into a firestorm of opposition in Iraq because Iraqis saw it was essentially a give the oil back to the multinationals scam. For example, Iraq's trade unions wrote a joint letter to the Iraqi president, which read in part, quote, Production sharing agreements are a relic of the 1960s. They will re-imprison the Iraqi economy and impinge on Iraq's sovereignty, since... They only preserve the interests of foreign companies. We warn against falling into this trap. Close quote. The U.S. press usually points to disagreements among the Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds as to how profits should be distributed among themselves as the reason for opposition to the law. That's part of it. But so is the don't give the oil away sentiment. Okay. With this new Iraqi oil law stalled, you now arrive at the present-day situation and the deals announced last week. If the multinationals can't yet seal the deal formally, they'll start tiptoeing in the back door in sweet anticipation of soon owning the entire house. What an amazing headline and opening paragraph of the New York Times story. Quote, Deals with Iraq are set to bring oil giants back by Andrew Kramer, Baghdad. Four Western oil companies are in the final stages of negotiations this month on contracts that will return them to Iraq 36 years after losing their oil concession to nationalization as Saddam Hussein rose to power. Close quote. These four companies are ExxonMobil, Shell, Total, and BP. The very companies Iraq took the oil back from 36 years ago are now being invited back in, thank you very much, by the U.S. propped-up Iraqi government. Surprise, surprise. 
Chevron and several smaller oil companies are also involved. Now, these deals aren't formally set up as the exploitative PSAs. They're nominally structured as service contracts. The companies will supposedly just be assisting the Iraqi oil ministry. But a provision being negotiated would make payments in oil, not cash. So the companies could reap large profits. Layla Benali is an expert at Cambridge Energy Research Associates. She said that, quote, these are not actually service contracts. They were designed to circumvent the legislative stalemate, close quote. As with most things right-wing instigated, there are many unseemly aspects to this. These are no-bid contracts, unusual for the oil industry. The Iraqi oil ministry offered as a defense that these companies had been advising the government for two years without charge. But 46 companies from Russia, China, India, and elsewhere have been providing similar free advice, and they didn't get any contracts, no bid or otherwise. The critical point here is the future advantage these U.S. and other Western oil companies will now enjoy. Quote, the contracts, which would run for one to two years and are relatively small by industry standards, would nonetheless give the companies an advantage in bidding on future contracts. Close quote. Ms. Benali explained, quote, The bigger prize everybody is waiting for is development of the giant new fields. Close quote. These would be the ones subject to the presently stalled, give away the store, U.S. drafted Iraqi oil law. You may be amused at how gingerly some of our corporate media raised the issue of, well, maybe the Iraq war was blood for oil. Here's reporter Kramer in the New York Times, quote, There was a suspicion among many in the Arab world and among parts of the American public that the United States had gone to war in Iraq precisely to secure the oil wealth these contracts seek to extract, close quote. A similar paragraph in the Washington Post also danced around the issue. Quote, a higher profile role for Western companies in Iraq's oil industry is likely to revive speculation that the Iraq war was motivated by a desire to tap into reserves that were controlled by foreigners until the 1960s when the industry was nationalized. The belief is widespread in the Arab world. Close quote. Speculation, belief. No basis in fact at all, is there? You now know better than those just reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. And given all you now know, especially that the U.S. essentially drafted the Iraqi oil law, this New York Times paragraph about these preliminary deals is even more of a joke, don't you think? Quote, It is not clear what role the United States played in awarding the contracts. There are still American advisors to Iraq's oil ministry. Close quote. What does the right wing have to say for itself? Oh, the usual right wing out and out lying. Quote, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice said the U.S. government played no role in securing the deals. She called the impending contracts a sign that security gains are attracting foreign investment in Iraq. Close quote. Yeah. As you now understand, the oil giants see Iraq as a rare opportunity to get their hands back on major oil deposits. If you've been listening to Blast the Right for a while, you know that in the rest of the world, the trend actually continues to be in the exact 
opposite direction. Quote, the oil majors are also struggling to replace their reserves as ever more of the world's oil patch becomes off-limits. Governments in countries like Bolivia and Venezuela are nationalizing their oil industries or seeking a larger share of the record profits for their national budgets. Russia and Kazakhstan have forced the major companies to renegotiate contracts. Close quote. For more details about what's happening in Bolivia and Venezuela's battle with the multinationals, see Podcast 49 and 68. It's all of a piece. In Podcast 121, you also heard about protests in Mexico recently against the efforts of that country's right-wing government to hand off its oil industry to the multinationals. You may be thinking to yourself, sure, U.S. and other Western-based multinationals would like to control the oil, but would the U.S. ever go so far as to overthrow a government for that purpose? Well, it's a well-documented historical fact that we've done just that. For over 50 years, Iran had been getting the short end of an 84 to 16% production sharing deal. So, in 1953, the democratically elected government of Iran nationalized its oil industry. The United States and Great Britain used their intelligence agencies to overthrow the government and install the Shah as dictator. He ruled in bloody fashion for 26 years. Thus was sowed the seeds of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. We overthrew an Iranian government in 1953 to get Iranian oil back into multinational hands, and half a century later, in 2003, we overthrew an Iraqi government to get Iraqi oil back into multinational hands. And, I would add, to establish permanent military bases in Iraq. Remember Podcast 58 about the project for a new American century. Our actions in Iran caused massive resentment there and led to a takeover of that country a quarter century later by hardline Islamic radicals. Our actions in effectively grabbing Iraq's oil will similarly produce results we won't like, and probably in far less time. So there you have it. Just this past week, it comes to light that the oil giants now have their foot in the door, their nose under the tent, their bloody claws starting to encircle the throat of the Iraqi people. A former Exxon CEO, Lee Raymond, was recently unabashed and blunt. Quote, the former chief executive of Exxon, Lee Raymond, praised Iraq's potential as an oil-producing country and added that Exxon was in a position to know. There's an enormous amount of oil in Iraq, Mr. Raymond said. We were part of the consortium, the four companies that were there when Saddam Hussein threw us out, and we basically had the whole country. Close quote. We had the whole country. Yes, indeed. And to have the whole country again is their goal. Make no mistake about it. I wish the Iraqi people well in their struggle to prevent the theft of their oil. You and I exposing this attempted grand larceny is one way we can help. As the saying goes, sunlight is a great disinfectant. Texas a foot in his mouth. Too 
you like to demoralize your friendly local right-winger. In fact, you can demoralize not just one, but a whole bunch of them, all the right-wingers you know. Because nothing gives a right-winger more satisfaction than the smug belief that the American public is on their side, is conservative, backs up their positions, that it's we progressives who are out of touch with mainstream America. Well, just imagine how bummed out they'd be all these right-wingers, if they knew how wrong they truly are. As with most things right-wingers say, the exact opposite is true. There's some juicy additional evidence of this right now to further back up what you heard if you were a listener back last fall. Sources you'll hear in this segment include RasmussenReports.com, MediaMatters.org, GreenbergResearch.com, The Associated Press, and PewResearch.org. Last September and October, you heard my three-part series called Reason to Cheer. You learned that surveys from major polling organizations all show that Americans support progressive policies on most every economic and social justice issue, that our progressive majority is growing larger and larger, and that increasingly left-leaning youth will turn the country increasingly progressive. What issues, you may be wondering? For starters, try the overall role of government health care, immigration, taxes, and moral values. Yes, moral values. Majorities of your fellow citizens, often two-thirds or more, endorse all of these progressive positions. The government should provide more, not less services. The government should take care of those who can't take care of themselves. The government should guarantee health care for every American. The distribution of wealth in this country is unfairly concentrated. The wealthy pay too little in taxes. The minimum wage should be raised. There's a moral imperative to pay workers a living wage. Undocumented immigrants should have a path to citizenship. And Democrats reflect the nation's moral values more than do Republicans. And to top it all off, the views of the nation's youth on many issues are even more strongly progressive than that of the country as a whole. As summarized by the New York Times, America's youth, quote, have continued a long-term drift away from the Republican Party, close quote. Fair enough, and a joy to hear, enough to bring a smile to your face, to paint the picture quite rosy. Well, it gets even better, and here's what you can now also use in this summer of 2008 to drive a stake through any remaining political enthusiasm your right-wing friends and acquaintances may still be mustering for their cause. Scott Rasmussen is a nationally recognized pollster. He's also a conservative Republican, so no one would expect that he's inclined to tilt his polls in favor of Democrats. If a Rasmussen poll has bad news for the GOP, you can bet that there's truly some real-world bad news there. So the following really caught my eye the other day. The June Rasmussen poll of the top ten issues on the electorate's mind found that the Democrats are trusted more than the Republicans on every single one. Every single one! Now, there are the usual suspects you'd expect. By double digits, Americans trust Democrats more on health care, education, the economy, 
government ethics and corruption, and social security. Telling your right-wing buddies that won't affect them much. They'll shrug it off and say, maybe so, but on the things people really care about, by which they mean security issues plus the hot-button culture war wedge issues, on those, the right-wing side wins hands down. Wrong. Sorry, right-wingers are going down here as well. On Iraq, Democrats are trusted by more than an eight-point margin. On abortion, by a seven-point margin. Yes, by a seven-point margin. Apparently, John McCain's calling on his website for the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not going over that well. And many Americans probably aren't yet even aware of his extreme position on this issue. Closely monitor the look on the face of any right-winger you tell this to. Continuing with the countdown, on immigration, Democrats enjoy a four-point advantage. On national security slash the war on terror, a three-point advantage. Not a big margin, but most right-wingers would expect their side to be way ahead on this one. Lastly, there's taxes. The be-all and end-all of right-wing ideology. Cut, slash, eliminate, where possible, any tax you can get your hands on. By which they mean, of course, primarily reduce the tax burden on the wealthy, which Bush's tax cuts have done quite well. The wealthy will be the first to admit. The richest 10% of Americans have gotten somewhere between 60 and 80% of the benefit of Bush's tax cuts. But right-wingers think they're continuing to pull the wool over the public's eye, that the public still thinks it's Republicans who will lower the taxes of the average Joe. I guess not. By a 2% margin, voters trust Democrats more on taxes than Republicans. Again, a narrow margin, but the right wing would expect a landslide in the opposite direction. Crestfallen may not begin to describe the look you'll see on the face of the right wing recipient of this bit of news. Now, one caveat. When Obama and McCain are substituted for generic Democrat and Republican, McCain is even with Obama on economic issues and has a double-digit edge on national security topics. As Rasmussen says, the attitudes indicated by the generic Republican versus Democrat question, quote, are likely to have a bigger impact on congressional races than the presidential election, close quote. Well, in a worst-case scenario, much bigger Democratic majorities in the House and Senate would be able to kill many of the bad things a President McCain would try to do. Supreme Court nominees, anyone? And since Rasmussen has actually had Obama ahead of McCain over the last couple of weeks by up to several points, maybe it'll be an overwhelming Democratic majority Congress combined with a President Obama. Now that would really demoralize your friendly local right-wingers big, big, big time. And mark my words, if a President Obama and strong Democratic majority Congress don't follow a progressive path, I'll be the first one out there to condemn and agitate against them. For now, though, I'm focused on ripping our government out of the hands of the right wing. Demoralizing them is one part of achieving that all-important goal. You've just gotten some potent ammo to do so. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right. 
Vote for Blast the Right at PodcastAlley.com. And, of course, if you haven't done so, write a five-star review for Blast the Right in the iTunes Music Store. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Why don't you come over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and then you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. I want to thank all the following for carrying Blast the Right. KWMD in Kosilov and Anchorage, Alaska, WUTZ in Summertown, Tennessee, KNFS LP in Tulare, California, and the websites nextgen570.com, globalpublicradio.org, and Grateful Dread Radio at gratefuldread.net. Music credits. The break music was L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber and Not the One Blues by Burnsheet Thornside. The bumper music was Too Much Bush by Wang Dang Doodle. We'll close with a little bit of Taking My Country Back by Honky Tonkers for Truth. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right are found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use are found on the data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. As you may know, there's also transcripts now being posted of each new episode. They're also found on the podcast homepage. I love getting your comments. Please write to me, rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. Now.